Matthew 6, 19 through 24, uh, really opens up and sets for us uh, what for many of us is going to be an uncomfortable conversation because it deals with money and it deals with our heart. And, and we really want to keep those two things separate. We want to see those two things separated. We don't really want them to engage with one another. We don't want them really to have to talk. But I'm going to tell you this. What you're going to find is if your opinion or if your kind of methodology, the way you live your life and kind of how you set your mind, as far as that comes to money, if, if in your mind and in your life there is a divorce, a separation between your thoughts on money and your thoughts on God, your thoughts on money are always going to win. Because you have to have money daily. You don't have money to pay your mortgage. You don't have money to pay your rent. You don't have money to buy food. You don't show up to your job. You lose your job. You don't have money for all these other things. You're destitute and you're on the street. And so there's this constant reminder to us that, that money is a reality of life. And if you have not chosen to submit your view of money to your view of God, your view of money will win. Because you're going to view money as more pressing and more urgent. And this is exactly what money, possession, and, and all these things are going to do in your life. They are going to be the silent killer. They are going to be the carbon monoxide working its way into your life. And before you know it, all spiritual vitality in you will only be to the point that money comes in and enters the equation, enters the conversation. Every decision you make, if you don't choose to submit your view of money to your view of God, every decision you make, every job you take, everything you say yes to, everything you say no to, will ultimately be because you're worshiping money instead of worshiping God. Now I'm going to tell you, this is a difficult thing to look at. Money finances, possessions. And Jesus goes after it in no uncertain terms. He's not looking to take prisoners. He is executing on the spot our, uh, the opportunities in our life where we place money to be equal with him. So I want to start with an example, okay? Luke 18. Many of you know this, the story or the parable of the rich young ruler. This guy comes up to Jesus in Luke 18, in verse 18, says a rich uh, ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The guy wants to know what he has to do to be saved, kind of in, in our parlance. Jesus said to him, uh, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, and he starts to run through them. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and your father. So he runs through things, and this guy's thinking, oh, man, I got this salvation thing. I got uh, eternal life locked up in spades. Jesus is calling out my morning. All these things I'm knocking out before I brush my teeth. He said, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus heard this. He said to him, one thing you still lack. Looks at the man. Looks at his heart. Doesn't look at the way he's dressed doesn't look at his kind of self-description of, of righteousness. He says, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And look what he tells him. You'll have treasure in heaven, and then you can come and follow me. And I'm willing to bet that most of us, if we face Jesus in the hallway, and we're posed with this same scenario, 
that even though we like to look at this rich young ruler and say, oh man, I would abandon everything for following Jesus, many of us would find ourselves in the same situation. Many of us would find ourselves doing these same things. So Jesus tells him, give everything away, give it all to the poor, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. The man heard these things and became very sad. Why? Because he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Notice Jesus wasn't describing a difficult thing. He was describing an impossible thing. Jesus responds, he says, truly I say to you that there is... Nothing impossible with God, but with man, these things are truly impossible. So Jesus goes through and he recognizes this guy has done a lot of good and right and true things, but the one thing that held on to this guy's heart more than following God. Now, the interesting thing to note is he's not an immoral person, right? He's not committing adultery. He's not doing these things. He is following God. But he's doing so in such a way that we have an indication that his view of God is in submission to his view of money. So Jesus comes in and he brings us a really just stark command in 19 through 24. Look what he says back in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus has this command, this utter prohibition. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, the difficult thing for us to answer this morning is going to be this. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for Dave? What does that look like for Justin? What does that look like for Kalina? What does that look like for Charles? What does that look like for Lori? What does it look like for you not to lay up treasures on earth? And what I'm willing to bet is that over the course of your life, that line has moved further and further and further, providing greater and greater comfort, greater and greater ease. Because the simplicity with which we enter into vocation, enter into job, we've got debt. And so for us, what it looks like is just paying off debt, right? Paying off education debt, paying off our household debt. And then we see something we want that's in addition to the normal money we bring in. So what do we do? We begin to save for it. Or maybe you go out and you take a loan for it. And you begin to kind of pay that off. And you're working towards that. And there is no limit. There is no limit to things that you might see that you feel that you need. But most of those things in life, they are not needs. They are only wants. And when we begin to submit our view of money to our view of God... We have clear vision to recognize the difference between wants and needs. But until that happens, we are blindly following money. So Jesus comes in. He says, don't do this. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Why? And Jesus gives us this argument of temporality. He effectively comes in. He says, look, anything you might seek to hoard, to gather, is going to come to ruin." And so maybe they look at it and say, what if I gather kind of deeds of property? 
and, I, and I'm accumulating all of these deeds of property, or, or I'm, I'm acquiring expensive clothing. So this is kind of this first century mindset. Jesus says, you need to understand something. The moth will come in, and it can eat those deeds of property. The moth can come in, and it can eat, and it can devour this clothing. And then what are you left with? Nothing. See that field over there? I used to own that, but now I can't prove it. Because a moth came in, and it ate even the deed of property. And so then somebody says, okay, what if, what if I begin to acquire all of this other wealth? And, and Jesus says, no, no, you need to understand something. Even things that are more lasting, more enduring than, than fabric, rust can devour that. Rust can eat that. If you don't believe it, walk around and look at metal that is subject to, to water over extended periods of time. Valerie's dad, they have a, a bay house in Galveston, and that corrosive salt air, it eats everything. And, and what Jesus is pointing at here is, look, don't look at these deeds of property. Don't look at this expensive clothing. Don't think, oh, then I just need to get something more permanent. He says, no, rust is going to eat that. And then you've got this guy, this kind of ingenuitive first century redneck says, man, they're never going to get in my hunting site. If I got that thing in the back, there, will ruin that thing. I got all this stuff figured out, Jesus. And I got a Rottweiler. And I got a wife. And so he's like, okay, 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 okay. So this is what happens. This guy takes this, this wealth, he takes all this stuff, and he goes over, and he places it in the back of his home. He says, look, there's no windows, it's on a corner, it's completely and utterly secure. Jesus said, this is the problem. This thief comes in, and actually the way that this word is framed and described, he said, this free thief comes in, he sets up right behind this wall, and he digs right through your wall, and he takes everything you have out of your home. So what you thought was secure was only fooling yourself. You have moths that are going to eat it. You have rust that's going to corrode it. Or you have a thief that's going to steal it. So Jesus enters in and he gives us this understanding that all of these things are temporary. That all of these things are fleeting. That all of these things, they are passing. Think in your mind. Back to the time you were a child. And think about the most amazing gift that you ever wanted. Just kind of set your mind on it. And, and, and this gift is even more powerful if it's something you did not receive, right? Because then you have your imagination to tell you how great it would have been, how, how much better your childhood would have been if you had received this. For me, it's easy. It was the original Nintendo. Every friend of mine had it, and that argument did not work on my dad. My cousin had it, and that argument did not work on my dad. And I will tell you, I wrote a letter from Stavanger, Norway, to the president of the United States of America, and that argument, <clears throat> it did not work on him. I never got a Nintendo. But just think about this. It's the ridiculous thing that I wanted that I, I kind of set my affections on, I set my attention on, and I felt that my life would be greatly enhanced and made better if I had this. And you look at it, you say, well, that's silly. But how many other things in our life have we set our attention and our affection on? We're so disappointed when God doesn't give it to us. And we move this line further and further and further out of the things we want, of the size house we have to have, of what the car that we have to drive is, of the job that we have to have. We are killing ourselves working for things that don't last. 
work more and more and more hours for things that do not last. When God clearly tells us in this passage and elsewhere, do not lay up for yourselves treasure, possessions, money here on this earth. So you're, you're left with this question, then what do I do? Like, what does it look like for me not to do that? And he says, this is easy. What you need to do is instead of laying up treasure and possession on this earth, all this stuff that passes away, all this stuff that is fleeting, lay up for yourself treasure on earth. And this is why Jesus gave us three various teachings. He says, when you go out and you give to the poor, don't do it in such a way that people see you and celebrate you. But do it in such a way that your father who's in secret rewards you. And this blessing endures and this blessing lasts. And then he says, and, and, and when you fast, don't do it in such a way that people look at you and say, Tim, you're such a righteous person. You're fasting, I hear it's been 30 days since you ate. And you're like, oh, it is. But instead, do it in secret in such a way that your God who sees in secret will reward you and your reward in heaven will be great. And then, and then when you pray, And so all of these things we've gone through, when you give and when you fast and when you pray, and all of these things are done not for no reward, but for a heavenly reward. And do you see the difference there? The earthly reward is that thing that is immediately tangible, that thing I can set my mind on, set my eyes on, and work my tail off to attain and to achieve. And all of these things he he tells us are fleeting. So if we set an inverse order of things in our life, and we highly value education, if we highly value being married, if we highly value a larger home, if we highly value these things, and we have not submitted them to our pursuit of God, then we end up serving them instead of serving God. And when he tells us just merely, don't do this. These things fade. These things fail. They will leave you empty and wanting more. Paul tells us that it's incredibly difficult to find ourselves in the midst of contentment. And in this passage, that our minds always go to, what is it? Being content with not having enough. But interesting, in that same passage, Paul tells us that he has learned the secret to having abundance. It is just as difficult to have a lot as it is to have a little. It is just as difficult, and we are just as dependent upon God to have a lot as we are to have a little. So he tells us this, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Why? Because he says that in heaven, neither moth nor rust destroys, and, and, and the thieves don't break in and steal. And so all the things that we could lay up in heaven, all the things that could be ours there, they are permanent and lasting and forever, and they cannot go away, and they cannot be corrupted. And so you begin to think, like, what are things value to me? What are things that, that I would desire? What are things that, that I would be willing to entrust to God instead of working and striving for? The first thing that has to come to our minds is our salvation. In terms of your salvation in the kingdom of heaven, the way scripture writes it, it is the most valuable thing that you can ever imagine or hope for. And so in terms of this, and and thinking through this, we lay up for ourselves our salvation in heaven, which is held secure. And God is holding your salvation secure. And this is great for us. Why? Because many of us are hapless nitwits that frequently find ourselves pursuing sin instead of pursuing God. And so when we do this, and then we come to ourselves, we have this recognition that our salvation is not sullied. Why? Why? 
because it is resting and waiting and secure for us in heaven. And this should result for all of us a hearty amen. Why? Because we frequently are nitwits. We're frequently this way. You watch a commercial. Watching some sporting event. You're watching some soap opera, God forbid. And this commercial comes on. And all it's working to produce and breed in your heart is that thing is better than the thing you have. That that thing is better than the thing you have. And so you begin to enter into this fantasy world of how you might make that thing your thing. I got news for you. I can settle this for you. When it becomes yours, it's no longer the newest thing anymore. They're going to make a new commercial and a better version of it. And the new one's going to have like massagers that, that work on the backs of your legs and your neck to take away all the stress from you working extra hours to pay off the new thing you bought. And then those are going to break in a week and a half. And then you're going to have more stress. So he tells us we don't want to lay up treasure on earth. We want to lay up treasure in heaven. And the connection he makes to verse 21 is devastating. You see, it's not just that he says, do this, don't do this. But what Jesus tells us is that when we find ourselves laying up treasures on earth, when we look around in this terra firma, our plane of existence, everything we see, everything we do, when this becomes the most important thing for you, that's an indication that this is where your heart is. Jesus tells us in verse 21 that where our treasure is, there our heart is. In essence, what he's telling us in this is if your heart isn't on, bent on, dedicated towards, if your affections aren't set, if your attention isn't focused on laying up your treasure in heaven, then neither will you be heading there. If heaven isn't better for you than this, it's a pretty good indication that's not your final resting place. Let that sit for a second. If we're more preoccupied with the things of earth than the things of heaven, you're going to enjoy this life. And you better, because that's all there is. That's devastating. And when we think about this, if you're honest and you would quit lying to yourself, if you quit buying in and, and hearing people that would speak into the same cycle of disbelief and, and building into your, your faulty worldview, your faulty conception of what you need to have and what, what, what is right in, to do about money according to man's standards, if many of us would be honest with ourselves, we set our hearts here with great frequency terrific, terrifying, awful frequency. And that should absolutely devastate and terrify us. And if it doesn't, then you should be terrified now. Our hearts are only made to glory in one thing, and that's not here. It's not our spouse. It's not our kids. It's not our job. It's not our intellect. It's not our stuff. Our hearts are only ever designed to glory in God, to praise and glorify Him. But we are surrounded by a culture that is captivated on the pursuit of stuff, the accumulation and preservation of stuff. And so we find it very difficult to maintain our focus and attention on 
God. And we need to maintain this fight. We need to maintain our intensity in this pursuit or we will find ourselves ending up in the place where this world is all there is for us. Jesus makes this connection. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where have you set your heart? Where have you set your heart? Think about that. The average American works 34.4 hours a week, which seems like an odd way to punch out. Now, the average full-time person works over 47 hours a week. But you think about that. Think about the number of hours you spend working and toiling. I'm not advocating for a shorter work week or some type of French revolution where we take crazy amounts of vacation in the summer. But think about the amount of hours you spend working. And what happens when you work harder? You get raised. You get a promotion. So most things in your life are working against you setting your hope and devotion on things of heaven instead of things of earth. And I'm not advocating some type of cultural endeavor whereby we seek to upend that, but you have to be aware. Don't be blind. Don't be naive. Everything here, work and all of these things and and, and work for reward, these can be good things, but they are not ultimate things, but they desire to be. Work desires to be an ultimate thing for you. Money desires to be an ultimate thing to you. Stuff, possessions, they seek to be an ultimate thing for you. And this is something we're indoctrinated with from about the time we're this old, this tall, and able to say, want it. I've got a two-year-old. What he says most readily is no, and he employs it most frequently when we try and take something away from him. Many of, his, many of us as adults employ that same idea. When somebody tries to take money or our things away from us, we say no. When the rich young ruler was given a chance, an opportunity to follow Jesus, and the instruction to him was effectively this, give everything you have, sell it all, give money to the poor, and then you can have treasure in heaven long-lasting, eternal treasure in heaven, and you can follow Jesus, it was too much for him. Where is your heart? Is it here? Where is your heart? Is it above? And Jesus goes in in verses 22 and 23, and he gives us the metaphor of the eye to describe the predicament of the heart. The metaphor of the eye to describe the predicament of the heart. And so he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. I began and I told you that that wealth, that money, that possessions It works like carbon monoxide. It's odorless. It's colorless. We don't notice its presence in the room until we begin to recognize its negative effect on us. And for many of us, we wouldn't notice those negative effects until it's way too late and we're dead. Money wants to do the same thing to you. 
It wants to work and weave its way into your heart. And so Jesus used this description of light. And he says, imagine then that your body is bringing in a light and, and everything you see is having some effect on you. And money and possessions is having an effect on you. And you have to recognize how devastating an effect it can have. Scripturally speaking, in terms of finances, in terms of possessions, the only biblical way to understand this is that you are a steward of God's money. You are a steward of God's property. In terms of kind of how it affects us, the poet is right when he said, mo money, mo problems. But in terms of understanding our role as a steward, all the money in your bank account, whether it's at Alliance First National Schwab or you have it buried in a sack out back, which you might want to dig that up. This ground's wet. That's not going to last. But no matter where that money is, it is not yours, is the only biblical Christian response and understanding of this. And when we understand it's not ours, when I understand that my house that I live in is not mine, but God has given it to me as a vehicle for ministry and has allowed me to be a steward over it, it begins to fundamentally change how I view my house. It also makes me wonder how God's going to pay for some stuff that's broken. But that's neither here nor there. But when we begin to look at our money as a vehicle for our comfort and a vehicle for our ease, then what we've done in those instances is to submit God to our view of money. But when we look at those things and say, I am a steward, that everything he brings to me is his, and I spend it, and I use it in such a way as to glorify him, then in that view, in that instance, what I'm doing is submitting my view of money to God. Now, I can tell you that when you look at churches, and, and this church is included, that what you'll find in terms of giving and generosity is that a small percentage of us are very generous. It's a small percentage. I was doing some research a number of years ago on a pastor. and He'd been a pastor for 40 years, and he had never looked into the finances of his church. And it was his last pastorate, and it was his last year of his last pastorate, and the guy that was the chairman of the deacon said, like, you really need to look and see what people are giving. So he knew he was going to retire, and he knew it wouldn't affect his ministry. And so he looked, and what he found was that many of his church leadership gave little to nothing to the church. That some of the people who were the most faithful in attendance gave nothing to the church. And that the old adage that your church is largely supported by 20% of the people was not just true for him, but it was a different 20% than he would have supposed. And what we would find if we had to be honest, and I don't want to know how much you give, because I know it would change the way that I interact with you. But if, if we had to be honest and we had to, entering in that back door, have some type of declaration of generosity. I have been generous and I've given this much money to the church and to other nonprofits. I've given this much time to glorifying God. I've given this much energy. If we had to give an accounting for this, and if in some way that accounting is a true reflection of our hearts, then many of us would leave dismayed. Because an accurate accounting of where many of us are would unfortunately paint the picture that our hearts are here and not with him. So every time I think about stewardship, 
It's not for me just a, just a metric for, man, we need to raise more money so we can do more stuff, or we need to raise more money so we can, we can do more work, we need to raise more money for, for this or for that. Money is always going to be indicative of a spiritual state. And if you invert it, if you think somehow it's innocent enough to submit God to money, then you're following money. You're not following the God of the Bible and the salvation Jesus extends to you. You clearly don't want it. You want the salvation your finances provide you. And this is what you set your hope on. This is what you set your joy on. Your heart is here and not there. This is when Jesus ends that section on the eye and he says, and if the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. So many of us in this room, across this city, across this country, are incredibly misled. We've mistaken financial blessings for the blessing of God. And so within this vein, we think that if we don't have money, that God is somehow angry with us. And if we do have money, somehow God is more pleased with us. So those of us who don't have money try really hard to get it. And those of us who do have money try really hard to hold on to it because we think we're holding on to the good pleasure of our God. Where you are in life, God has not made a mistake that has landed you in this place. And so some of us don't have very much money. If I asked you to rub two nickels together, you'd have to go out and borrow one. And then you have to borrow another one. And then you'd be like, look, I got them. I can rub them. And you'd run off and keep them because you didn't have two nickels to begin with whole another sermon series on theft. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> not going to get very far. One of the hard questions for us in terms of kind of where our heart is, if you never save any more money than you have right now, and if you never offload the stress and pressure that comes your way due to finances than, than you have right now, would you testify that God is good? Or would you be disappointed with him? That somehow your hard work and your motivation never paid off. It's a terrifying thought. That our misplaced efforts and our misplaced goals reveal to us the times where we place our heart in this earth instead of on heaven. So Jesus really wants us to understand this. He must have understood that the first century audience was just as dense as his pastor. And so he moves into this last statement of verse 24. And he says, you have to understand this. No one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. You're not, just not able to do it. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. If you've ever had two jobs, you're going to notice that you always do better for one job than you do the other, Right? You're going to pour your time and attention into that thing that you want to be a career or that has the higher reward for you. And then this side job, you're going to do just kind of with your overflow of effort. None of us is able to do well at serving two masters. He says, you're going to have a preference over one. You're going to like one. You're going to dislike the other. You can't do this. And then he takes this and he rolls it to the idea of money. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. So who do you choose? 
Who do we choose? Where is your heart? So maybe you think of money. And you say, you know, that's, that's not such a big deal. Money and stuff, it's not such a big deal. I, I just don't think Jesus is really concerned with this. Let me just share two more verses with you. Two more passages with you. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 5 kind of has this list of things that are immoral. He says, be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, and we would say, we recognize these guys are sinners. He says, or covetous. You want stuff that's not yours, money you've not yet made. He says, these people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Paul writing again in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Raise your hand if you want to be rich. The pursuit of riches, the pursuit of money. This is where it leads us snare and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into destruction and ruin. Look what he says in verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So he goes through and he's talking about this church where Timothy's at. He said many people desire money, they desire possessions so desperately that they begin to follow them instead of following God. You know, we're describing a first century audience. Many of them, most of them did not have much. So maybe you find yourself out there and, and you don't have any money. You're, you're on government assistance. And so for you, you think this, this just grants me a buy because money's not an issue for me because I don't have it. Money is an issue for all of us. It's an issue for all of us, those whose Pockets are lined with gold and those whose pockets have holes in them. It's how we handle money. Do we submit money to God or God to money? Jesus wants us to understand that our value system has to be set right. And so when he's describing the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, he wants us to see kind of what our minds need to be set on, how our focus needs to be. So he describes it in terms of two things. And in chapter 13, verse 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And so the story is you've got this guy walking along and he stumbles onto this field and he finds a treasure in this field. So he looks around really quickly and he thinks, oh, I don't want anybody to take my treasure. And so he begins to cover up the treasure. And then he runs out and he sells absolutely everything he has. And he goes back and he buys the treasure. And Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then the other scenario in verse 45, he says, you need to understand that the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a merchant in, shirt, in, a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So this guy, his business is the collecting and selling of pearls. And so he finally finds this pearl, and when he lays his eyes on it, he knows that everything he has in life is nothing but a liability if he can't lay his hands on this. So he goes and he liquidates everything, his home, his entire pearl collection. He goes and he buys this one. Why? 
Because this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Setting our mind, our attention, and our focus on the kingdom of heaven is all we are called to do. Our God asks us where our heart is, where our mind is, where our affections are. Let's end with a story. Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus. There's a song, I won't sing it. Jesus enters uh, Jericho and he's passing through and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector and rich. And we know this guy is wealthy. We also know he is despised. He's seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. I suppose you might say he was a wee little man. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see what he could see, for he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked and said to him, so this is the deal. Zacchaeus, this wee little man, is up in the tree. Jesus wanders along. He looks up and sees Zacchaeus. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. This man is rich and despised. He's loaded and he's got no friends. So he hurries down and he came and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. And they said, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. This is where Jesus finds all of us. We all have some liability. We all have some sin that is festered in our lives. And Jesus finds us at our point of need. And he bids us come. And we're just like Zacchaeus. Unworthy to be visited by Jesus. Unworthy to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Unworthy to enter into his fellowship and into his presence. That's what they would say about us if they knew what we were like. Thank you. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor... And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Gospel of Luke gives us two stories. We have the guy who's done everything right over the course of his life. But when it comes to following Jesus, the price is too high. Then we have with Zacchaeus, the guy who's done everything wrong over the course of his life. And when it comes to following Jesus, there is no price too high to follow him. Where is your heart? What have you set it on? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for your work of redemption to be mightily at work in us. Many of us have set our hope, our satisfaction on those things that are temporary and fleeting. And so, God, I pray for your grace to help us walk up out of that. That you would reorder our hearts, that our heart would be shifted from focusing on the things of this earth to shifting and focusing on the things of heaven. Father, I pray for those in this room not followers of Jesus that have never submitted their lives to you. Good, moral, 
amazing, salt of the earth people. I pray for those in this room who have never followed Jesus and we might look at them and say that they are despicable, that they are despised. And I recognize the salvation afforded to them comes through the blood of Jesus, which reconciles the moral and the reprobate. So God, we serve a Jesus who came and lived a perfectly sinless life, who died in our stead for our sins. And he bids us come Moral and lost, immoral and lost. Father, I pray for the movement of your Holy Spirit in their lives to bring conviction, to produce life. And we submit these things to Jesus, and it's in his and we pray. Amen.